0: Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Lean Publishing Podcast, I'll be interviewing Paul M. Jones. Based in Burns, Tennessee, Paul M. Jones is an internationally recognized PHP expert who has worked for organizations in many different sectors, including medical, nonprofit, educational, and military organizations. He is the lead developer of the Solar PHP framework and lead on the Aura for PHP project, and was a founding contributor to the Zen Framework. Paul is a regular speaker at technical conferences worldwide and blogs at Paul M. Jones.com. In a previous career, he was an operations intelligence specialist for the U.S. Air Force. Paul is the author of the LeanPub books Modernizing Legacy Applications in PHP and Solving the N-plus-1 Problem in PHP. In Modernizing Legacy Applications, Paul explains how to get messy legacy PHP code in order using a series of specific steps to turn it into an organized, modern, testable application. In Solving the N-plus-1 Problem, Paul explains what the problem is and how to discover and solve it in your app using PHP. In this interview, we're going to talk about Paul's professional interests, his books, his experiences using LeanPub, and ways we can improve LeanPub for him and for other authors. So thank you, Paul, for being on the Lean Publishing Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story, so I was wondering if you could tell me how you first became interested in programming. Uh, this, is one of my, uh,
1: this is actually one of my favorite topics. Uh, a lot of people go through life and never find their true calling Uh, I got my true calling very early in life. Uh, When I was just shy of 13, my dad brought home a TI-99 4A Texas Instruments computer, Uh, and if anyone out there knows what one of those is, you know exactly how long ago that was. Um, I sat down down with that thing for, I don't know, a couple of weeks, and by the end of that time I knew what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. Uh, started out programming in TI Basic, uh, when you had to save the program to a tape cassette recorder, and then you had to play it back to to load it back into the, load it back into memory, so uh, that that's how I got started, and it's just been uh, it's been a wonderful experience since then, uh, learning how to program, learning the craft and the skill that goes along with it, uh, and and just and the whole and all the communities that go along with it as well.
0: So was your was your father a programmer himself?
1: No, my father was, uh, well, first he was an army chaplain, then he was a Methodist minister, and then he became a, uh, a certified financial planner, which is a sort of a, a minor version of a stockbroker. So he himself was not especially technical. I ended up having to help him out a lot with his, uh, with the various computers that we ended up buying for his businesses. Uh, one of the, I remember we had an Apple Three for a long time, and uh, I was in charge of, uh, helping them set up a lot of VisiCalc stuff to begin with. Um,
0: it's interesting. A you know, lot of, oh, sorry. For good or bad, I still, I still have to help them out with a lot of computers. So. <laughs> um, it's interesting. Yeah, a lot of people um, you know, I, that I've spoken to, you know, their first introduction to computers is, is playing games. But it sounds like you just dove right in and started you know, messing around with the machine. Yeah, my
1: uh, of course, there were video games at the time, but they were stand-up coin-operated things. You did not you know, download the latest version of whatever it was to your iPhone. Uh, if you wanted to play a game on your home computer, most of the time what you had to do was go buy a magazine, a physical paper magazine, look for a code listing in the magazine, and then type it in by hand from the magazine into the computer that you're working on, and then save it. Um, wow. And then try to
0: figure out how to debug it from there. Do you remember what the first game was that you played on that computer?
1: Oh, wow, that's a great question. Uh, I remember one of the first ones was a, uh, a text adventure style game. Mm. Uh, again, I don't remember specifically what it was. I think that was on that worked on both the TI and on an Apple II that I had access to at school. Um, and then after that, of course, you, you ended up buying games. We were not super wealthy back then, uh, and so and games were pretty expensive comparatively speaking. So if you were going to buy a game, you either had to, you know, shell out twenty or thirty
0: dollars for it and wait for it to come in the mail, uh, mm-hmm. and then put it in. So it was easier to spend the time than it was to spend the money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, and how did you? I mean, you ended up with a focus on on PHP in your career. Can you explain a little bit about your your path to that? Yeah. Spe- so um,
1: yeah, when I was in the Air Force. Uh, Of course, I did some programming there as well. I worked with databases a lot, worked with FoxPro. And then around 1994, uh, we got a copy of the original Mosaic browser that we used on uh, internal classified networks. And of course, you program that. You would have to write up pages using plain old HTML, so I started doing that. realized I liked it. Uh, When I got out of the Air Force, I continued working with web pages, that kind of thing, and trying to attach databases to them. One of the first database systems that I worked with attaching it to the web was FileMaker Pro. Again, that should give you you an idea of how long ago this was. Mm -hmm. Um, Using, uh, I think they called it CDML, Claris Dynamic Markup Language. And in doing that, you know, that was fun. I did that for one of the colleges that I was working at, for the college that I was working at at the time. And then I heard about this thing called MySQL, which is a real SQL database system. And this language called PHP that you could use to uh, interact with that and then generate a web page from it, and that sounded interesting. So I started on that. That was in 1999, and I've just kind of kept doing it since then.
0: Um, you mentioned that that you were you were coding when you were um, in the military as well, and I, I you know I saw from your bio that you um, you've worked for a number of different types of organizations, and I think people might be interested in in knowing if there, if there's any sort of stark difference between say, coding in, in in a military organization and coding for, say, a, a company or a nonprofit. I, I guess it would depend yeah. what sector they're in, but... Yeah, exactly.
1: And my programming work in the military was sort of secondary to the work that I was doing. My primary work was as a, what's called an, an operations intelligence specialist, as an enlisted guy. But they put me in charge of training other people who were in the organization and then to keep track of that. a lot of that training I ended up with, like I said, FoxPro and a couple of other things. Uh, so the programming for that was again secondary to the job. It was it was part of, it was in support of that job. Uh, programming there did not strike me as especially different than programming for any other client on the outside. But then that's because it was a sort of a small local client compared to the rest of the military. You know, it was just for my organization. Uh, so I I have not found any dramatic differences other than the uh, the need to make sure that whatever you did in the military stayed in the military. You know, there was no open source, anything like that. Uh, So everything you did had to be kept under wraps. Uh, Whereas out here in uh, in the civilian world, you've got all this open source stuff, which is fantastic to work with and you can share uh, both your solutions and your problems with everyone else and have everyone else look at what you're doing to tell you what you're doing wrong and maybe help other people figure out what they're doing wrong. So there was that, there was that difference.
0: That's really interesting. Um, you know, there's, there's obviously been you know, quite a bit of press lately about um, you know, U.S. personnel hacks mm-hmm. and, and things like that. And do you, do you have an opinion in general about, about um, security of, of, of data in the U.S. systems? There is a, well, we've all heard of Murphy's Law, you know, anything that
1: can <laughs> go wrong will. There are uh, military variations on that law. One of them is always remember that your weapon was built by the lowest bidder. Unfortunately, the same thing is true for government data uh, you know, programs. Anything that's related to data, it's built by the lowest bidder. So uh, I think this is an example of where that comes back to bite you really fast.
0: That's really interesting. Um, you know, I, I, when the um, Obamacare website um, fiasco un, unfolded, I had this joke that um, winning a government contract is an entirely different set of skills from actually making a website or or doing anything so I always thought of the problem in terms of just you know procurement but that's pretty straightforward criticism when you say that you know the lowest bidder wins
1: yeah that's that's pretty much it in fact when you talk about Obamacare it, it doesn't matter what your political affiliation is how you felt about it at all as a project management case study it is fascinating uh it's 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 almost a list of everything you could possibly do wrong all combined into one project. Uh, there's a guy named Arnold Kling who is an economist. He, he's blogged about that in the past as well. If you're interested in, a, in, a, in an economist's point of view from a guy who is not only economist but was also a programmer and, and built websites in the, during the boom, uh, he, he's got a series of very interesting criticisms about, criticism about it. So does uh, Megan McArdle. I think she works for Bloomberg now uh, who is also a technical person. Uh, wrote a lot about the Obamacare fiasco, again, from a production point of view, Mm -hmm. all really good stuff. Mm -hmm.
0: And do you think, do you think that it's possible that, you know, to, you know, put it broadly, you know, the government has learned a lesson from that in the future or is, are, are those, are changes to procurement processes just so difficult to change?
1: It's my guess that the inertia is not in favor of things getting better. Uh, none of the incentives are right, uh, with with government again this is an economics thing when you are taking someone else's money to spend money on something that you yourself are not personally vested in then uh, you're not going to be careful with how much money you take and you're not necessarily going to be careful with how you spend the money and you're not necessarily going to hold anyone or any of the right people accountable for how it gets spent uh, and that that's again that's regardless of where you stand politically that's uh it's just a set of economic incentives mm-hmm.
0: moving back to um to um php um i uh, i know that the it, it's it's gone sort of up and down in terms of reputation in the last 10 years or so um what's what's your take on that and and you know how things have changed just in maybe in the last couple of years
1: so uh depending depending on how you felt about php 10 years ago it had nowhere to go but up in terms of security <laughs> uh, th- there were a lot of uh Obviously, some security flaws in the language itself. But the primary problem was not the language itself, in my opinion. The primary problem was that uh, people who were drawn to PHP were not necessarily professional programmers. They were not people who had security concerns at heart. They just wanted to get something done quick, uh, get it on the web, because either it was going to make them money or they needed to do it for their, for their own internal organizations. And so they weren't necessarily thinking about security concerns right off the bat. Because they weren't targets, and then a, you know a couple of years later, suddenly everyone's a target with cross-site scripting exploits or SQL injections. They can take over your machine. Um, that's the point at which the community started standing up and paying attention to those kinds of things. You started seeing things like the uh, the filter extension put in place. Um, I think that was Pierre Alain Joy who did that, uh, which was a great a great boon. But in addition to that, there was widespread education if by no other means than by word of mouth among developers that these kinds of security flaws existed and you needed to watch out for them. So I think that security concerns have been addressed by the language, but it's been primarily addressed by the, uh, the better education of the people working in the language.
0: Okay, great. Thanks. Um, you, uh, you're, you're the lead developer for something called the Solar PHP Framework. Um, can you explain a little bit about how you got into that and what, what it is?
1: Solar is actually an older one at this point. Okay. Um, when I was, so way back when, in 2002 or 2003, there was, I became aware of a project called PEAR, that's P-E-A-R, collection of libraries. And I wrote a small, what I called the foundation, not a framework, because back then the word framework was uh, a bad word to use in PHP communities. Uh, so I called it a foundation, uh, and it was a collection of libraries from PEAR to do all the basic things that you needed to do, like uh, database connection, authentication, caching, logging, stuff like that. And I realized when, when putting this together from those other libraries, that none of the libraries really worked the same way. Even though they were all part of the same project, they were all from different authors under one banner. So they didn't look the same way, they didn't feel the same way, you didn't call them the same way. Uh, so with that in mind, I decided that I wanted to start a, another project where those individual libraries would all look and feel the same way. This was right around the time that PHP 5 came out, so I figured it'd be a good time to uh, to make a break with that older system and start putting together a new set of libraries. Uh, SOLAR originally stood for Simple Object Library App- and Application Repository, but it ended up being this monolithic thing uh, where you downloaded Everything all at once, and and used all of it whether you wanted to or not. And that turned out to be the uh, the standard for, for framework projects at the time. Uh, so that was the origin of it. That's how it got started. Uh, a lot of pe- a lot of people got interested in that and started contributing as well. It was nowhere near as popular as say the Zen Framework or Symphony one at the time, but it did have a uh, a small but, uh, what I would call a small but committed community. Uh, and I learned a ton from writing it, and I learned a ton from the people who provided patches and uh, helped to work on it as well.
0: And um, the Aura for PHP project—that's a—that's a newer thing that you're that you're working. Aura,
1: that—that's exactly right. Aura is uh, essentially Solar version two. One of the problems that we had with Solar, first of all, was the name. Uh, it's S O L A R. At some time thereafter. Uh, the Apache S-O-L-R solar project came out and people started confusing it with that. So when solar, the PHP project, went 1.0, we started discussing how we were going to do the 2.0 project. Uh, The first thing we decided was that we needed to change the name. So we settled on Aura as sort of a pun on the name. AU is gold, a sun symbol, and Ra is a sun god, so Mm -hmm. Aura. Um, And we decided that the new project should be more... Should adhere more closely to the original ideas that we had had when we started. That is, a series of individual libraries, not something that's meant delivered as a monolithic framework. So our primary uh, goal was to take the solar stuff and split it off into individual, independent, decoupled components, where they would be independent not only from a particular framework, but also independent of each other. So that was the driving. Uh, the drive. Those were the driving principles behind starting Aura as version two of Solar. Uh, I think it's worked out pretty well. We moved away from a universal super service locator to using dependency injection and uh, providing a dependency injection container that you could use if you wanted to. Uh, and then the various versions thereafter of the individual libraries, uh, we've been able to split those into even smaller components. So for example, the Aura SQL component used to be a database connection, uh, a connection manager, an SQL query builder, and a gateway and mapper system. We've actually split that out so that the connect in, in version two, the SQL query builder is its own thing. It'll work with any, any database connection at all. You don't even need one. You can just build queries at random if you feel like it. And the SQL connection portion just does that. The mapper and gateway have been split off to their own components as well. So it's been a story of, reducing the size
0: of the individual packages so they can be recombined in any way you like. Great, great. Um, yeah, thanks. That's, that's really clear. Um, I was wondering um, what what motivated you to write modernizing legacy applications in PHP um, on LeanPub? So the first motivation was uh, I wrote a
1: talk called steps or called it was like that when i got here <laughs> uh, so yeah subtitled steps toward modernizing legacy Codebases. the the motive and the motivation for that talk was that i had been in several organizations where we had these really old code bases they were tough to work with and over the course of several years over several different organizations i came up with a list of steps and notes for myself on how to reorganize these code bases and make them easier to work with so that we could add features more quickly, fix bugs more easily, and isolate things more easily. Uh, So in writing the talk, the talk came out of a, a generalized version of a story that I heard over and over again, where when you go into an organization and you look at the code base, it's horrible. You ask the people who are already there, how did it get to be this bad? And they look at you and they say, I don't know how it got to be this bad. It was like that when I got here. We've just dealt with it since then course, that's a that's a lot of suffering in our daily lives. That's a lot of pain and anguish, and you end up having this this relationship with the code base that is sort of adversarial. And you walk into work, and you're always kind of scared. You know, what am what's going to break today after I try to fix something? You spend a lot of hours late at night trying to make sure that things are going to work, because uh, if you touch one one piece of code over in one place, then something else somewhere else breaks. And it's, it's not really your fault, but you're the programmer. You're supposed to know what's going on, know what's going on. So after writing that talk and going through some of the initial steps of what I had done to modernize these legacy code bases in my own work, uh, I gave the talk the first time, and it was all well received. I gave the talk the second time, it was all well received. Third time I gave the talk, some people came up to me who had attended the first one. And they said, yeah, we've done it all. We've done everything you said. What's next? Because it's not really where it needs to be yet. Well, I had this this huge list of notes already, uh, and it turned out that the timing was right for me to sit down and take all of those notes and compile them into, uh, hopefully, a, a good how-to instruction manual on exactly how to follow these steps, follow these principles, and through a series of baby steps, end up on the other side with a, a code base that has gone from this spaghetti mess to something that is... Auto-loaded, dependency-injected, unit-tested, layer-separated, and front-controlled, uh, and based on the feedback, I, I think it's been a success in those terms.
0: Fantastic. Um. Um. Uh, yeah, it's great to hear when things things develop from talks like that, and and you know, getting feedback from people that they that they like it, um, and then, you know, wanting to share it with a wider audience over time and, you know, at any time when they, when they want to read it. Um, right. I, I, was, I, was, I was wondering, Um, in the introduction to the book, you talk about, you, you define legacy applications, but you make some comments specifically about the nature you, you of PHP legacy applications, and I was wondering if you could maybe say a little bit about that. Sure. So one of the, so first of all, the word legacy
1: carries a lot of baggage with it. Uh, normally, when we think of legacy code, we think of something that is merely old. You know, it's five years or ten years old, or is developed according to old principles, or it was merely there before I got here. And so, by definition, every programmer who comes onto a job looks at all the code that was already there as legacy, you know, no matter how good actually it might actually be. Uh, but in the work that I, that I had done that led me to write the book, I discovered certain patterns cropping up over and over again, as to how these applications had been constructed. And some of those, some of the points in those patterns included things like globals being everywhere, using globals, or um, there being evidence of having attempted to rewrite it using a framework more than once. So you'll walk in and you'll see a code base where you can see, you know, evidence that there's one framework has, they've tried to apply one framework and it never really finished. And then another programmer came in later and. Try to apply another framework and that one never really finished. And so you've got this code base with a, with a mess of idioms in it from different systems. Or that there is a poor separation of concerns between them. You've got, and this is especially true in PHP, where you've got a page script that sits in the document root that has a lot of includes in it to execute logic. And those includes, when you combine them all, end up combining the concerns of the model and the view and the control are all into the same scope. they are all sharing each other's variables. So that the typical PHP application in those cases ends up looking like what I call uh, an include oriented system rather than a class oriented or object oriented or even procedural, it's include oriented and it's page based because you browse to these pages that are sitting directly in the document root and each page is responsible for setting itself up and tearing itself down. Those, uh, those, and other factors are what I are the terms that I use to determine whether or not something is a legacy application in PHP land or not.
0: Mm. And and you talk about how you know the particular the way that people come to PHP in the first place has a specific impact on legacy applications in PHP.
1: That's exactly right. Uh, one the one of the great things about PHP is that you do not need to be a professional programmer in order to use it if you've got a business idea, or if you're just working for your organization, you're not necessarily a technical person to begin with, you hear about this language PHP, you know that you can just type in a few lines of code and get something actually running on a server. I mean, that's fantastic. It allows you to make money very quickly. So the great thing about PHP is that pretty much anyone can use it. Uh, but the great thing about PHP is also the terrible thing about PHP, and that is that anyone can use it, uh, whether they are professional or not. So the, the people who write these programs even if they are junior developers who will end up being professional programmers, PHP allows you to do a lot of stuff that maybe you shouldn't ought to be doing in the first place, uh, like combining concerns, that kind of thing. But it lets you get up and running so that you can uh, get something productive on the web and then you turn away and you go to do your next thing. Unfortunately, what's left behind is something that's kind of a security and maintenance headache uh, because you weren't necessarily thinking about in advance, Good architecture. You weren't thinking about it, whether you'd be able to test it automatically or not. I mean, testing. Who, who needs that? I can look at the page and I can see that it's working. Clearly, it's all right, and that's great until your first SQL injection hits, or until your first cross-site scripting problem hits, uh, and then you're left with this this horrible mess. Uh, in reading a book called *The Inmates Are Running the Asylum* by Alan Cooper, I found the the right what I think is the right analogy for this. When you look at these code bases. It's like looking at a dancing bear. Uh, when you look at a dancing bear, you're not thinking that you know maybe its pirouette is off balance or that its plié is not at full extension. You know. You're just amazed the thing dances at all in the first place.
0: Uh, looking at the code bases is a lot like that. You wonder how this ever worked. That, that's that's a really good that's a really good image. Um, you also talk about how when people are you know faced with this um, faced with this situation where they've got this terrible legacy code, um, that often they have. A desire to rewrite um, the whole thing, Um, which, which I guess in the context is understandable. And you also write specifically about developers who have the desire to become one's own customer. Um, And I was wondering if you could explain. I mean, I think it's kind of clear, but I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about that 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 kind of image of wanting to be your own customer and why that's a problem.
1: So every developer. First of all, no developer ever looks at anyone else's code and says, this code is fine the way it is. We're going to leave it alone. The, the first instinct of every developer when they look at someone else's program, no matter how good it is, is this is not the way I would have done it. It needs a rewrite. So because we have that first initial instinct every time we need to be suspicious of that, it turns out that that instinct is very self-serving in a lot of ways. We'd not necess- we're not necessarily looking at it to rewrite it, to make things serve the customer better or for the program to be better, we're doing it because we want it for ourselves. And if we want it for ourselves, that means that we get to be the customer then. and I get to determine what the needs are for it and it should be done the way I want it to be done. So we use ourselves as a reference point instead of using uh, some external concern as a reference point. And treating oneself as the customer includes things like, well, I want to use This new framework X, you know, this is because that's the newest hottest thing that so clearly it should be rewritten in that or uh, that it's that the way this has been put together is not the way I would have put it together myself. So I am going to be the determinant of what is right in this case, regardless of what any any external concern is uh, and do it the way I would have liked. Rather than looking at it and saying, well, it's serving its purpose pretty well. Other people are paying for it. Maybe we should mostly leave this alone and only tinker with it around the edges or make sure that it keeps working the same way but just improve the quality of what's going on under the hood. The neat thing about being your own customer is that it, if you'll pardon the phrasing it feels very sexy to do a complete rewrite because then you get to do it, quote unquote, the right way, you know, the way it should have been done. The problem is that that makes you very optimistic as to how well it's going to go. Um, and the joke about the joke that I make about rewrites is you know, you're going to go, you're going to estimate that it's going to take a certain amount of time. Of course, everyone's got their their favorite estimation techniques. Normally, it's you know pick some estimate and then double it, and that's how long it'll really take. So mm-hmm. you add some buffer. But when it comes to a rewrite, it's not enough to just double it. You also have to convert it to the next higher units, uh, so that if you think it's going to be a six six week rewrite. It's really going to be about 12 months. Uh, that's because there's so much going on in the system that you're blind to, that your optimism blinds you, uh, blinds you to. And then when you're most of the way, when you're uh, 12 weeks into what was going to be a six week rewrite, you realize how long it's really going to be, you start cutting corners, you start uh, taking shortcuts again, and you end up with a system that's just as bad as the old one, just in different ways.
0: Yeah, I think you mentioned um, Netscape as an example in your book. Um, I think that, did you say it took them 3 years or something to do their rewrite? Something something like that. I don't recall. I cribbed that one from Joel Spolsky.
1: Right. Uh, the the idea is that Netscape looked at their code base and said it's, you know, we, we need to completely redo this. You know, and maybe that was true, but they went out of business doing the rewrite. They're Mozilla now. Uh, they had to completely change everything about their business in order to make that happen. Uh, and if you're in a position where you can afford to do that, you know maybe a rewrite is for you. But most people that I know do not have either the money or the time to actually go through with that kind of thing. So I hope that this book, if nothing else, will save people from thinking that a rewrite is going to save them. Nuking it from orbit feels great, and refactoring feels a lot like work, and so we don't want to do that. But it turns out refactoring, even though it feels like work, has the benefit of actually working, Whereas a rewrite, most of the time, is just going to blow you up.
0: Um, you recently, I think it might have even been just over this past weekend, um, you held an online boot camp, um, walking people mm-hmm. through the, the, the um, modernizing process. Um, can, yep. you, can you explain the motivation for setting up that boot camp, how you set it up and, and how it went in the end?
1: Yeah. So, when I was, so I was invited to speak at the Zend conference, I don't remember if it was last year or the year before, where they wanted a, a tutorial session on basically working through the book. So I put it together and it ended up being something like 380 slides worth of information or something like that for a three hour slot. Um, So I presented it to a full room. I was very happy about it. Unfortunately, I had to cut out about a third of the information in it and I had to skip one entire chapter because it's just too much to go over at once. So I figured that if I could present it online to a committed audience over the course of a weekend, rather than in one three-hour session and try to shove everything in there, that uh, that, that would be a better way of delivering the information. And it turns out to have been true. Uh, we worked through essentially the same set of information, but I was able to spend a lot more time showing examples and working through, you know, basically doing limited code examples while doing it, uh, and people could ask questions while I was doing it. Uh, it took the full eight hours to get through it So I really don't remember quite how I got through any amount of slides in three hours previously uh, But it,
0: uh, it was very well received um, And do you think it is something you'll be doing again?
1: It is something that I would love to do again uh, This was a good first run But I saw some mistakes and flaws in how I did the presentation and there were some things missing uh, And so I had to sort of hem and haw and add those in on the fly uh, I expect the second version of it to have a lot more to it and to go a little more smoothly uh, again, it was something I very much enjoyed and i and I think the people who attended uh, liked it as well
0: great fantastic um your I have a question about your second lean pub book which is called solving the n plus one problem in p h p and I was wondering if you could just explain what that problem is and why it 's important
1: yeah the so the the n plus one problem essentially is a number of queries problem when you're putting together your objects. It's not something that applies just to PHP. This this will happen in any language. In fact, when I first encountered it, it was happening as a series of stored procedures in Postgres. The idea is this. If you've got, say, a blog post or a series of blog posts and you want to get all of the comments for all of those blog posts, generally what happens is developers will first get the list of blog posts, so they get a list of 10 posts. And then they loop through that list to get the comments on each post and attach the comments to the to the uh, the post objects what happens in that case is you end up making 11 queries one to get the original set of 10 posts and then one query for each of the 10 posts that are in that in that collection so you end up with a total of 11 queries maybe that by itself is not such a big performance problem but when you're putting together a collection of say 20,000 objects with five relation, five relations each you end up with 200,001 queries and a web page that doesn't load for 3 hours Uh, So that's a pretty serious performance problem. And it doesn't even need to be in terms of 10,000 or or 20,000 objects. It could be in terms of 20,000 requests being made against your system. If you can reduce by an order of magnitude or more, the number of queries that are being made coming out of an application as a scalability concern, then you need a lot fewer machines in order to scale up. So that's the basis of the... That's the base of the N plus one problem where the one is the initial query and the N is the, the multiple number of queries that have to happen to populate those other objects. Um, and yeah. then the book of course, is about how to recognize that that's going on, why it happens in the first place, how to solve it. Uh, and then some uh, some automated ways of solving it after you figure out how to, how to do it by hand.
0: Okay, great, great. Thanks. Yeah, that, that that's really clear. Um, I was wondering, um, just switching gears a little bit to, to, um, you know your process publishing the books and, and things like that. I was wondering if you could um, talk a little bit about how you found out about LeanPub in the first place and why you chose to use us um, to publish your book.
1: So LeanPub was highly recommended by a colleague of mine and I'm, a guy named Chris Hargis, uh, the Grumpy Programmer. Uh, he had published uh, once through a traditional publisher and then again through LeanPub and had nothing but praises to sing for LeanPub. Uh, the, the, the joke that I have made, and I think he's heard this before is that, uh, I figured if Chris Harches could write a book on lean pub, then, then by God, so could I. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, and, and so that's how I'd come to lean pub in
0: the first place. Okay. Thanks. And, thanks. Oh, yeah. sir. If you have more to say, please go ahead. No, um, no. I, could,
1: <laughs> I, I if you've got more specific questions, I yeah. can answer them more specifically. Well, yeah, no,
0: sure. I, I actually, I actually do have a couple. Um, but, um, yeah, before before I before I get a little technical, um, I would like to ask what your opinion is about the the book market and how it's evolving now. Um, maybe even specifically the computer book market. I mean, do you do you see more authors doing what you and, and Chris chose to do and to to self publish um, programming books? And is there you know are there sort of you know market and technology based reasons for doing that, or is it something with the publishing industry itself that's driving those those choices?
1: I'm going to take the easy way out and say there's a, a series of different concerns all playing back and forth with each other on that one. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that people in general like is to feel like they have been chosen. So when a publisher comes to you and says, we have seen you, we like you, we want you to publish a book with us, it has that aspect of feeling like you've been chosen by someone else. You know, it makes you feel good about yourself. So that right there is a very powerful driver uh, that that favors the traditional market because you get that sense of other people having recognized you. Uh, it's it's a, a status symbol, if nothing else. Uh, so that's so that's one driver in favor of traditional of traditional publishing. The primary driver that I see in favor of individual publishing or you know, self-publishing is that uh, you get to keep more money. And frankly, I am a cheap little man with a mercenary heart, and I like that idea. Um, it also means that I get to be in control of, for good or bad, in control of everything about the process. I get to choose the art. I get to choose the font. I get to choose everything about the book. I get to choose the, the process for writing. Uh, I get to choose in all but the broadest general sense how it's going to be published. Uh, and those, for, so, for people who have a very—I'm not going to call them people who are control freaks. I'm going to call them people who are control enthusiasts. Uh, for the control enthusiast, uh, self-publishing is a wonderful, wonderful thing.
0: Yeah, one one thing—I'm not sure if this this was important to you—but one thing in particular with technology books that, that you know is is a timing and having control over timing seems to be really important to people, especially if. You know, they're talking about something that's meant to solve a problem that people have right now. Um, you know, I think I think it's in particular hard for, you know, people who think in a technical way to say, you know, I've got the solution. It's out there to solve problems that exist right now. But now I need to subject myself to a an arbitrary process that means it's going to take a year or two for my solution to get out there. And it, it seems that there's just a certain type of person that finds that, that to be an unbearable situation.
1: I completely agree. And as a follow-on to that, it may be that your solution, uh, when written down, is only 30 or 40 or 50 pages. It's gonna to be tough to find a publisher who's gonna find that a profitable concern to follow. Uh, whereas with individual publishing, you can do small one-off pieces that address a very you know, as narrow or as broad a topic as you like, but if it's small, it's probably a relatively narrow topic. But being highly focused, you can spend all your time working on that one thing, get it out, get it out of your brain, and have it published, and that's, that's a fantastic thing. In fact, that's the N plus one book that we talked about before. That, that's a, I think that's a pretty good example of that kind of thing. Uh, it didn't really fit in the modernizing book, even though we reference it, uh, but it's something that would be a full-sized book on its own either, so publishing it as, I think it's like 60 pages, something like that, publishing it as its own standalone thing Uh, turned out to be really, I mean, it's really nice to be able to do that. You just can't do that with a traditional publisher, not at a profit anyway.
0: Mm -hmm. And did you, did you publish either of your books um, in progress? That is, you know, published the first version before all the chapters had been. I did. And
1: that was another real
0: benefit of
1: uh, self-publishing and specifically with the model that LeanPub presents is that uh, I was able to write I think the first three chapters, which frankly were the hardest three chapters to write uh, with one exception, and then put them out there on LeanPub to say, hey, you know, this is here. If you're interested, come and get it. Uh, If you like, please give me feedback so that I can fix typos and address other concerns. Uh, The the feedback was phenomenal, Uh, right? Just right off the bat, it wasn't even finished yet. Um, So that, so first of all, being able to publish it in installments in that way was super helpful to me as an author. But it was also super help for, helpful to me as a perfectionist because you got to help get a lot of feedback from a lot of people who are paying attention to, uh, who, who will all find some small detail that you never noticed, and you could put it in and have it go out on the next iteration. It's fantastic.
0: And how did you receive um, feedback? Or did, did you explicitly encourage it in your book or on your um, landing page? So again,
1: one of the wonderful things about uh, the Lean Pub process was, as you publish, a- as you release iterations, you were able to send uh, an email to everyone who had already pub- who had already bought it, and say, here's the next version. If you notice problems, here's how to contact me. And so, so people would send me emails. Uh, in fact, I think it was only by email at the t- time, where someone would say on Twitter, "Hey, I noticed on page X that you've got this right here, and that's not quite right. You should probably say this instead." Um, so that so that communication mechanism, just from hitting the publish button, uh, was fantastic. And then, in addition to that, I, there were several people who knew me or who already knew my address, and so could buy the book, or uh, uh, or download a sample, and then give me feedback just privately.
0: Yeah, that that's really interesting. I have, I have a question related to that. Um, so, just for anyone listening, um, the way the way um, our our emailing readers feature works in Leanpub, it's that when when um, someone publishes a new version of their book, they have the option to send a message to all readers. And that message goes to you by email, but um, you don't actually see the mm-hmm. author's email address and the author doesn't see your email address either. So we facilitate communication without revealing email addresses to people, although although it is possible. And then for you to share your email address with the author, and and this is my, my question to you, Paul, is is that did you feel that that was a loss that you didn't have email addresses for all your readers? Or was the, 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 the sort of you know, not exactly double blind, but was the sort of blind communication system that we have. Did that work just fine? It, for you? it worked
1: just fine for me. Most, but of that it. was mostly because when people would email me, they recognize, or when they would contact me through the uh, through the Leanpub system, they recognized that it was essentially a double blind system. So if they felt like hmm. uh, giving their email addresses, they would, and if they didn't feel like it, they wouldn't. But in every case, I can't think of a single case where this wasn't true. Uh, everyone wanted to provide their email address as part of that communication. So, I did not feel like hmm. I was missing out on anything uh and if nothing else, it felt more valid that they were not required to put an email address of some sort that they wanted to actually have this communication back and forth and that was uh that was very satisfying if that makes sense
0: okay thanks yeah no that that's really that's really clear and that's really that's really good good feedback for us to to know that 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 works that way um um I was wondering um so um you know, as you were saying about, you know, sort of control enthusiasts, um, a lot of a lot of authors who who use LeanPub are very opinionated um, about their writing and publishing tools. And I was wondering, um, from your perspective, if there's anything that stood out that you think we could improve? That's
1: a really good question. I can't think of anything offhand in terms of the tooling that goes on. I just use a text editor and I work in Markdown. I, I, I use Markdown for everything personally anyway, so that was not such a big deal to me. Having the uh, the Markua super set of Markdown was also very nice. Um, if there was one thing that I think could be improved in terms of things on Leanpub side, and I think I've mentioned this uh, to to uh, to to Scott and one of the other guys at Leanpub, is that it would be nice to be able to publish the sample separately from the main book, so that if you want to make a change to the sample or add or remove things from it. It would be very nice to do that independently. Um, I I am aware that this the back end production process for those two things is probably closely they're probably closely tied to each other, and so decoupling them from each other would be might be a very difficult thing to do. Uh, but even so, a, as an author and as you know as the person doing the publishing, I personally would find that pretty useful. Uh, having said that, that is the only thing that I've run into that's been even mildly inconvenient and everything else about the lean pub publishing process has been uh, very straightforward and very easy to use.
0: Okay. Thanks. Thanks very much for that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the, 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 the way Lean pub works right now is that, yeah, when you, if you want to update your sample book, you have to hit the, you know, publish a new version button, which, you know, if you haven't changed your core book won't change anything, but it's, it's an important, it, there, there is a distinction obviously between, updating your sample and updating your, your book, whether you do them both at the same time or not. And it does, it certainly would make, it, it, there would be a sort of logic to having them be separate processes, but right. And so perhaps one day we'll, we'll do that. But right now, yeah, they're, they're pretty closely intertwined, those two, the, the generation of those two things. Um, uh, I guess, um, uh, yeah, the only question I have left is, um, are you planning on, on writing another book? Um, and is there in one, one in the pipeline? There's right nothing
1: now? in the pipeline right now. Uh, I do have some general vague ethereal ideas about what I would like to do next. Uh, one of them is to write a book about Action Domain Responder, uh, which is a refinement of the model view controller pattern uh, that applies direct, applies more specifically to web applications than it does other kinds of applications. Uh, that would likely be a very small book. Uh, another one that I've got in mind is uh, there is a, 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 a culture of what are called preppers, uh, people who like to be ready for emergencies, that kind of thing. And, uh, I would like to write a, it is, I have considered the idea of writing a book specific to my experiences in putting together my own little stash of stuff and how I went about doing it in a step-by-step way so that it didn't have to be this gigantic expense all at once. It could be this, you know, small step-by-step thing, uh, sort of like the modernizing process was for applications. (laughs)
0: <laughs> That's really interesting to connect to connect yeah. those two things. Um, yeah, well, that would be that would be great to see that. Um, okay, well, Paul, I just like to say uh, thank you very much for your time and for being on the Lean Publishing podcast and for being a Lean Publishing. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks.